0: Hello, I'm Thomas Streeter from the Climate Change Content Working Group at CFA UK. With the explosion of interest in climate change in the last couple of years, I thought it would be a good idea to go back to the basics and have a look at the climate science. For today's In Conversation podcast, we have Dr. Sasha Turchin, a geochemist at Cambridge University in the Department of Earth Sciences. So hi, Sasha, thanks for joining us today. I'm Delighted to talk to you about this fascinating and very important subject. So, um, a, lot of, a lot of terms are thrown about, greenhouse effects, global warming, climate change. I was just wondering if you could just maybe explain these to us for a non-scientific audience and what are the drivers behind these and, and why, why they're important.
1: And absolutely. And thank you so much, Thomas, for the invitation to come and speak with you today. Um, so- the earth gets all or the vast majority of its energy from the sun and the energy that comes from the sun comes in at a very short wavelength in the visible light range but then the earth re-radiates energy back to space as a function of its own temperature and some of that energy that is is emitted in the sort of longer wavelength light uh, sort of frequency range is trapped by the um, molecules of gas that we have in our atmosphere. Now, when we think of our atmosphere, it's 78% nitrogen and 21% oxygen, and then maybe about a percent that's argon. And then the final little percent is, or less than a percent, is made up of lots of other gas molecules that all together make up our entire atmosphere. Now, oxygen and nitrogen, which is most of our atmosphere, are not very good at absorbing either incoming light from the sun or the radiation, the long wavelength radiation that Earth radiates back to space. But some of those trace gases are effectively very, very good at absorbing the outgoing sort of long wave radiation that Earth you know, radiates at as a function of its temperature. And the gases that are particularly good are gases like water vapor and carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxides. And these are able to absorb radiation because they vibrate at frequencies. That means that they trap this outgoing long wave radiation. And we're very grateful for this because if you consider the energy coming in from the sun, And some of that gets reflected back to space because we have things that are bright like ice sheets and whatnot that just reflect light back to space. If we were to calculate the temperature of Earth just based on the energy we receive from the sun, it would be on average about um, 30 to 35 degrees cooler than it is today if we had no atmosphere that can trap this outgoing long wave radiation. the fact that we have these gases in our atmosphere that actually help absorb some of the outgoing long wave radiation is what allows our planet not to be like Mars, frozen over. It allows us to effectively retain some of the heat before it escapes back to space. And that's why it's called a greenhouse effect, because similar to a greenhouse, where you basically allow the trapping of, of CO2 and 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 gases, and that allows it to be slightly warmer. That's how we think of these gases operating in our atmosphere. So even though they only make a very small fraction of the gas in the atmosphere, they play an incredibly important role in helping to maintain a habitable planet. So maintain temperatures that we think have been above freezing for all of Earth history. And that's particularly important because over the course of um, the history of the planet. So four and a half billion years, the sun used to be much dimmer than it is today. It used to be about thirty or thirty five percent dimmer. And so it was even giving us less incoming, you know heat or energy in the long time ago past. And yet, our best estimate is that temperatures on Earth have been above freezing for most of their history. as As best we can tell, based on the rocks we can look at and other evidence, We think that this greenhouse gas has been very, very effective in helping us maintain temperatures that are in a range that is allowed for the evolution of life. That is the range that liquid water can exist at. So that's effectively what the greenhouse gas effect is, right? So this idea that the small trace constituents in our atmosphere help to absorb the outgoing long wave radiation. Now I may have I may have missed what else you wanted me to sort of define in that, but that's basically how the greenhouse gas you know the greenhouse effect works.
0: And that's that's a really uh, detailed and and, and uh, comprehensive answer. So thanks for that. So I, the next thing I guess is as people talk about climate change and you mentioned some of the greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide. So. Um, you know are there any other important ones that we should be aware of and, and out of these gases, you know, which ones and you said there's only a sort of a microscopic very, very small percentage, less than one percent in the atmosphere. but you know which of these gases are most important? We always hear people talking about CO2, but other people talk about methane and you know occasionally people talk about other gases. So you know, in terms of uh, the proportion of you know, how important these different gases are and you know how much we're emitting into the atmosphere now, uh, you know, compared to the sort of previous averages where where things were okay, and now maybe it's getting too much.
1: Yeah, so you know when we think about if you if you think back to the science you would have learned in secondary school, right, and you think about just sort of physics, right? You can think about um, the spectrum of long wave radiation that the earth is emitting to space, and different gases are good at absorbing different parts of that particular spectrum. And so you've listed the main players. You know, uh, carbon dioxide, methane, and water vapor, let's say, are going to be the three that are, are most important. Um, nitrous oxide is also important, but between, you know, and of, of those, we really talk mostly about carbon dioxide and methane. And the reason for that is they have what we call a long lifetime in the atmosphere. So they don't, water vapor concentrations change between day and night because the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere is a function only really of temperature. So during the day, you know, if you, as you know, when it's cold, the the air just holds less water and when it's warm, it can hold more water. And so in many ways, like water vapor is a very good greenhouse gas, but it doesn't act to force the climate because it rains out and evaporates on a daily cycle. And so we don't think of that as actually forcing climate change, but carbon dioxide, you know, lives in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. And and methane for tens of years, right? And so when you add a molecule of CO2 to the atmosphere, it's gonna stay around there for quite some time. And so when we talk about climate change, what we're talking about is the increase in the total parts per million uh, concentration of carbon dioxide, methane, and other what we call long-lived greenhouse gases, the ones that don't just go away the next day. So they're going to be around there for quite some time.
0: Is this part of the sort of carbon cycle? And also I, I hear this term geochemical balance. So what, what are these terms and how do they fit together and, and how do they uh, relate to what you've just been talking about?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, geo, geochemists or geologists or, or climate scientists will use the word cycle a lot. And so that's a common, a common word. And a cycle just basically means... Um, Something that has a a source and a sink, so something that's putting it into a, a reservoir, we call them reservoirs, like so the atmosphere as itself is one reservoir, and then something that takes it back out again, right? So in the simplest sense, you would hope that the rate at which you're supplying something to a reservoir is the same rate that you're removing it from that reservoir. So the rate that we supply CO2 to the atmosphere would be the same rate that it's taken up by all the things that remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And that's things like photosynthesis. So the growth of plants will take CO2 from the atmosphere. The oceans, the surface oceans will, you know, dissolve CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, Life in the oceans as well will take it up into photosynthesis. And so you, you would like to think that there's a balance in that cycle where the rate at which I supply it to the atmosphere is equal to the rate at which I'm taking it out of uh, of the atmosphere. Or you could think about it in terms of the surface ocean, right? So the rate at which I'm supplying CO2 into the surface ocean is equal to the rate at which it's leaving the surface ocean through mixing with the deep ocean or through degassing back to the atmosphere. So you could think of any one of these as, as a sort of reservoir or a box and trying to figure out what's the rate that we're adding it versus the rate that we take it away. Now, when the rate that you add it is much greater than the rate that you take it away, then the concentration or the amount in that box is gonna increase. And so then eventually if you if you stop adding it, then the the terms that take it away will increase to try and bring it back down into the equilibrium that it was in potentially before. And so, you know when we talk about geochemical imbalance, you know we can think about that in terms of any reservoir. You can think about that in terms of the atmosphere. You can think, think about that in terms of the surface ocean or even the deep ocean, or you know, all soils or a lake, you know, whatever you want to sort of draw a box around and think about, okay, what are all the things that bring carbon into this environment, and what are all the things that take carbon out of this environment? Now, when it comes to the atmosphere, we say there is a great imbalance in carbon, the carbon cycle or the, the the carbon budget within the atmosphere. That is, you know, we are, there are natural processes that put carbon into the atmosphere, things like volcanoes, um, you know, things like respiration. So, you know, decomposition of trees, right? Take the carbon that was tied up in the tree or in the soil and return it as CO2 back to the atmosphere. And so there's a natural balance of that process. It's balanced by dissolution into the ocean and dissolution and, and uptake by photosynthesis or uptake into rivers or chemical reactions with rocks. But right now we're emitting you know, tens, hundreds of times more carbon than those natural processes. And as a result, you know, the the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is increasing, right? And it's not increasing, you know, as quick as we're adding it, only about half the carbon that we've emitted is in the atmosphere because the rest is taken up by the biosphere and it's taken up by the oceans. So it does go into other reservoirs very, very quickly, but a fraction of it is being retained in the atmosphere. So if we think about, people pick different dates to start counting, but let's say about 1850, somewhere in the middle of the industrial revolution, the, ap- the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere was, let's say about 285 ppm. And today we're at you know, 415 ppm. So that's a, a massive increase in carbon in the atmosphere. And again, it, it represents approximately about half of the emissions. With the other half having gone into the biosphere and into the surface ocean,
0: and, and with the ocean, with it going into the ocean, that heats up the ocean. Ocean expands, and that causes um, sea level sort of rises, which which is very dangerous for humans.
1: Yeah. So the sea level rise is caused by the temperature of the planet. Um, so the the basically the temperature that the ocean water is at, you know, so the temperature at that that Earth's surface environment is at um, the the. The thing that happens when you dissolve this excess CO2 into the oceans, CO2 is a weak acid, right? It's why a, a bottle of Coke has a, a pH that's, you know, low and it's why, or even a bottle of fizzy water, right? You're putting CO2 into that water and it stays as little bubbles and some of it dissolves into the water and it has that slightly tangy taste, particularly if you drink see like a carbonated drink out of a metal cup, right? You can taste that. And that's just because there's a little bit of the metal released from the acid by the CO2 that's in the bubbles of the drink. And so, you know, CO2 in the ocean is lowering the pH of the ocean, right? So pH is a measure of the acidity. And slightly lower pH makes it very difficult for things that um, to, to live in the ocean, particularly organisms that um, make shells out of uh, minerals, certain minerals that are very pH sensitive, those really can struggle under the conditions where we have slightly acidified the ocean. Now many organisms are, are pH tolerant within the range that we're changing pH units, right? Because they also, you, you know, the way that organisms maintain a, a cell is by pH pumps that go across the cell membrane. So. In some ways, many organisms are going to be tolerant of, of changes in pH. However, it, that sort of process of acidifying the ocean is going to be particularly bad for certain organisms. Now you mentioned something else that's really important: this idea of temperature change and sea level rise. So sea level is rising. Um, it's risen by, I think, uh, 15 to 20 centimeters. Uh, yeah, so 20 yeah, global mean sea level has risen about 20, 25 centimeters. And, you know, that is partially due to heating and thermal expansion of the ocean, and it's partially due to the melting of ice. And so, you know, with the change in temperature we've already experienced, you know, they think that about a third to a half of that sea level, and again, different models calculate it differently, about a third to a half of that sea level rise has been due to, um, due to thermal expansion of water to the ocean right and contributing to that sea level rise
0: right okay that's really interesting and you mentioned um models and financial analysts we love we love models so um can you just tell us about you know what what is the sort of the scientific community's you know consensus in terms of climatic modeling and uh you know what are the some of the important scenarios that, that we need to think about and what are the risks to, to you know models? You know, obviously we can't predict the future exactly, but but obviously we can we can have some good idea.
1: Yeah, I mean models are key for us to understand, you know. I, I guess sorry, climate scientists have very little to say about financial models, most likely. <laughs> reading the papers and and trying to understand them and get our heads around them, much like financial people are probably trying to read the the papers and understand what climate models are trying to tell them as well. And so I think, you know. You know, models are an inherently important tool in any field of science—not uh, just climate science, but financial science—in order to try and project current conditions with a series of assumptions into what they're going to be in the future. You no, know, and climate models—you know—they vary in their complexity. So you can have climate models that deal with regional changes. Uh, well, you can have climate models that deal with global changes. So you treat the Earth as one system where you say, this is what the concentration in the atmosphere is doing. And that tells me projects like global sea lo- sea um, surface temperature, global sort of average temperature rise. That doesn't, you know, help me know if it's going to be colder or warmer in England next summer. You know, it doesn't help me really understand regionally, you know, how uh, how is this going to affect droughts or floods? And these are the types of risks that you you need to warrant ward against. Like so these are what we'd like to use climate models for. And so then you need to go to climate models of increasing complexity, where basically the earth is broken into more and more boxes, where you consider within this box, if this happens, that's going to project to this next box as to what that's going to happen. And I think there's a really good analogy with financial models. Like you, you want to project where are we going in the next five to 10 years so I can make the right types of investments for myself, for my clients. And you have to do that based on a series of assumptions of the way that people are going to act. You know, are, are they going to buy more? Are they going to buy less? Are they going to buy this? Are they going to buy that? You know, and make it based on a series of projection of political decisions or regulations that may or may not come into effect. You know, and as a result, you know, if you think about financial models and you project them out for ten years, you're going to get, you know, if you if you got a hundred financial models, they'll give you a hundred different, you know, ranges of answers for where things are going to be in ten years, and those are all founded on the underlying assumptions of each individual model. Climate models are the same, right? Each scientist has taken different assumptions to the importance of clouds or aerosol particles, or the change in temperature that will then feed into biosphere growing faster or growing less fast, or the ability of the ocean to take up carbon or not take up carbon. You know, climate models are all gonna deal with these things in a different way. And so therefore, again, 100 climate models predicting out predicting out to, let's say, a century from now are going to give you potentially 100 different answers. But similarly to how I don't think, you know, just because every financial model gives you a slightly different answer, you know, doesn't mean that you just say, well, I can't trust any financial models. You know, if 99 out of 100 financial models are pointing you in one direction... You wouldn't say, well, yes, but there's uncertainty because there's this other one that says, you know, maybe it's going in a different direction. You know, similarly, I would say not even just 99 out of 100 climate models, 100 out of a 100 climate models are telling us that, you know, the range of severity of impacts are going to be very, very large, right, in terms of understanding global uh, climate patterns, regional weather patterns, you know, the the likelihood of, of frequent or more frequent storm events, um, the likelihood of sea level rise and the magnitude of that sea level rise. And so, you know, a lot of people, a lot of what I read in the the, the sort of the press is, is because climate models predict this huge range of possible outcomes, you know, they are somehow inherently untrustworthy, but they're all pointing in the same direction, right? It's just that how they parameterize, and by that I just mean how they deal with the feedbacks, right, inherent in this sort of world and trying to, to take the bits of science that everybody is doing and putting them together into one coherent picture, you know, different models emphasize one thing or another, and, and so you will potentially predict a range of different outcomes.
0: Right, but the, the consensus is very clear, well, the or direction, the, the direction of travel is, is very clear, and that, I guess, brings us to you know why the world has the Paris Agreement and you know, governments, and now companies, you know, very, very, trying very hard to uh, get to net zero by 2050 or sooner. So, I mean, what, what are the ways? Some of the ways you think that uh, companies and individuals, governments, can try to you know, achieve uh, reductions in emissions to to meet the, uh, let's say, the Paris um, agreements uh, goals. And, and do you think these are enough?
1: Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think I think that these agreements are critical, right, because no one country and no one person is going to achieve this alone. And I think that that's probably, you know, one of the the real challenges, I think, of of climate change. It's a global problem. And you making it equitable at this point is 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 almost beside the point. I mean, it's sort of, you know, everybody needs to contribute and everyone needs to commit to this together. And everyone needs to be part of the solution. And you know, it's so easy to make the day-to-day decisions um, for comfort over constantly keeping this in the back of your mind. But I think you know, I think the the problem is always that no one person's decision is going to make any difference. But everyone together making the same decisions is going to make a huge difference. You know, so you know, in my life, you know, we try to make. Certain decisions. We try to walk where we can. We try not to fly where we can. I mean, you can hear from my accent that I'm from America, so I do try to get home to see my my family from time to time. Um, but you know, you you try to make decisions that you think are are going to help with these sorts of changes. Um, you know, the 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 net zero challenge, I think, is is fantastic, right? So this is this idea that you know, we're putting out in 2019, it was like 10 gigatons of carbon per year. And if you think over the last, since 1850, we've emitted somewhere around 450 gigatons of carbon, you know, so if we're starting to go at 10 a year, that's a much faster pace. Like this rate of emission is going up substantially. Um, And the idea of net zero is that, you know, each country and, and various industries contribute to that 10 gigatons a year or nine gigatons a year in different amounts. And the question is, can you actually counteract, you know, even you in your day-to-day life, can you counteract the emissions that you're going to make by doing something that's going to offset those emissions so that your net addition of carbon to that 10 gigatons is zero, right? So don't change anything you're doing, but can you think of ways of, you know, actually taking the carbon that you emit in terms of an industrial solution and putting it back underground, right? So you're doing what you're doing. You're a steel industry. You're the cement industry, but you actually, rather than just letting the CO two escape to space, can we actually um, supercharge it and actually push it back underground again in carbon capture and storage?
0: Yeah, no, I was going to ask you about carbon capture and storage. I know you're researching this, so um, can you just explain the process of carbon capture and storage and, and how does it, you know, how does it work? How does it reduce carbon in the atmosphere? And do you think it's it can be a, you know, a really viable solution um, you know, to help achieve net zero?
1: Yeah, so I was just going to, before that, I was just going to say that like on a family by family basis, you can also make decisions that lower your own small fraction of that 10 gigatons of carbon, or you can make decisions that you think are going to help offset the the gigatons of carbon that you wish to emit. Um, but if everyone individually were to make that choice, then we globally will get to uh, to a world where our emissions are offset by things that we're doing to take the CO two back out again. From uh, carbon capture and storage is this idea that um, if you can if you can not take CO two necessarily just from the atmosphere, but from a stream of CO two like coming off of an industrial pipe, or coming off that they, they do this in the North Sea. So coming off of um, you know the the ships in the North Sea, they. That rather than just letting that escape into the atmosphere, they instead pump it back down underground or to some place where it can be you know stably stored or held. Now, rocks themselves have uh, an inherent porosity, right? So a porosity refers to the pore space between the grains of that rock. And you know, fortunate or unfortunately, this is how partially how we've gotten ourselves in this problem. We've got lots of holes in the ground where we've gone down to extract what had been in those rocks, which are the hydrocarbons which fuel our carbon based economy. And so these pipes exist and these rocks exist that no longer have the things in the pore space or it's been replaced with, you know, a a brine of some sort. And the question is can we use that, that pore space by actually taking the carbon dioxide? that is sort of left over from the processes at the surface and actually pushing it back down underground and putting it back where we took hydrocarbons out. Now, the issue right now is that it's it's still costly to do that, right? It's con- it's countries investing and in saying this is what we want to do and we recognize that there is going to be an energetic there's going to be a sorry, a, a financial cost to actually putting carbon underground. But there's the potential because there's a the volume of space that could be filled that it it could be an investment that then has a carbon offset. Now, currently, i I think I looked up the number. It's not that many gigatons of carbon that have been sequestered this way. But the hope is that, you know it could end up being, um, you know, so we've emitted, let's say, four hundred gigatons of carbon some of the articles I was reading, you know, suggest that this could be as much as, um, you know, 200 gigatons of carbon could be stored underground, two or 300 gigatons of carbon could be eventually put back down. Currently, that's going to be at a, you know, it's going to cost money to actually do that. But, you know, and then the question is is going to, you know, how much carbon do you use to potentially be supercharging the CO2 to then push it underground and trying to understand that. But the, you know, the net, The net idea is that it may be an investment that countries need to make in order to do this, but that for certain sectors of the economy, steel industry, cement industry, which are such large contributors to the overall carbon emissions, that this may be a good way to make a a tangible change in the amount of carbon that they are putting out into the atmosphere, their contribution to the total. Um, You know, so the work that we're doing with carbon capture and storage is trying to understand the chemical behavior of the CO2 once it gets down into these reservoirs. So CO2, as we said, is a weak acid, but it also interacts with things that are down there, including bacteria and stuff that live in rocks just generally. And we're curious about how this affects the overall pH balance, whether it might dissolve more minerals. How do you actually try and enhance the stability of carbon in these particular reservoirs. And we're lucky because, you know, countries like Norway have been investing in this in a lot for a long time, right? So, in their offshore oil capabilities, they've been working on reinjecting CO2 underground, and that means that we already have some good data, modeling data, geophysical modeling data to understand exactly how these CO2 is going into these uh, reservoirs, back into these reservoirs.
0: Okay, great. That's really interesting. We'll definitely have to keep an eye out on on your work there. Any um any final thoughts uh, on climate change um, that you you wish to share with the investment community?
1: Um, it's a good question. I uh, <laughs> I think you know don't be scared of climate models, and I promise I won't be scared of financial models. <laughs> um, so you know, this this is something you know, we're going to have to do, and, and every little helps, right? Sorry to steal, I think, some supermarket slogan, but, you know, every bit that we can do is going to, you know, add together to to make a change. And, you know, you you can be ahead of this or behind this. So an analogy that I think about sometimes, um, you know, is, is back to the ozone layer in the 1980s. And, you know, we, this is I'm I'm old enough that I I can remember this from from my childhood. But you know, in the 1980s, there was all this talk about the degradation of the of the ozone layer over Antarctica, and that the fact that this hole in the ozone layer was growing, and that the culprit ended up being these chlorofluorocarbons, which were part of aerosolized cans. And one of the biggest manufacturers, I think, was Dupont. And the story I was told as a child, or I guess I was told in at university was that DuPont could see the writing on the wall that you know, chlorofluorocarbons were coming out of these cans and that the chemistry indicated that you know, it, this was playing a big role in actually destroying ozone. Now, obviously we need ozone, we need its ozone layer because otherwise ultraviolet light, so very short, length, length, live, uh, short wavelength light from the sun gets through, that's exceptionally damaging to, uh, to skin and to any cells of any animals um and so we need that ozone layer there and dupont you know saw that this was on the writing was on the wall and they actually went and rather than trying to counter the science they basically went and developed the replacement product for chlorofluorocarbons so that when the regulations came in place they were ready to say you know you know here's here's the replacement we can put in our aerosol cans and we can still you know nebulize your hairspray or whatever it is that you need to to use and i think this is a time to start thinking ahead in a similar way i hope i haven't misremembered that story probably some of your your um some of your listeners probably in business school heard the whole story and and i may be misstating it slightly but you know i do think it's a time to say it's 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 time now to say okay listen the vast majority of this is looking like it's pointing in the wrong direction what can i do what can my business do to be ahead of the curve on this right rather than waiting for regulations to come in place you know we we lose time i think if we don't start thinking of solutions now your audience they're really good at thinking of solutions climate scientists are are good at trying to analyze problems right but thinking about solutions you know figuring out how do you strategically place yourself to solve this problem i think is going to be a win for any any business you know how do i actually put myself in the right place to to think about about solving this so that's what I would say don't be scared of climate models and I promise I'll try not to be scared of financial forecasts and everything that we can think about doing you know little things that we can think about doing are are going to help either on the emitting side or on the sequestering side when I say sequester it's taking out again Yeah So you know every every little helps and let's try to be ahead of the curve on this
0: Okay, Sasha. Thanks so much. That was really, really interesting. I learned a lot, and hopefully the audience did as well. And I think you're right. Um, you know, business can use the the case study of Dupont, and uh, you know, follow, uh, you know, look at new science to you know to basically make changes to to help the environment. So that's great. Thanks again, Sasha. And we'll we'll follow your work, and hopefully we can get you back sometime in the future.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.